You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Church, glad to be in the house of the Lord tonight, again worshiping, although virtually uh, worshiping together still nonetheless. Uh, Of course, we heard the news this past week that uh, the the stay-at-home order was going to be extended for another two weeks. So, uh, of course, a little disheartening and discouraging, but we believe and trust that God is still sovereign and God will still meet with his people despite the, the, the difficulties and the, the distance that we face. And, uh, of course, we need to be uh, continually praying for this pandemic, everything that's going on, whether it's uh, the rulings of our government and, and those who are getting sick with this virus. Um, but we are going to continue nonetheless in our study in the Gospel of John. We are at part 9 now in our study, and we're only at the end of chapter 2. So this is going to be a long and great study. I hope you've been enjoying this, by the way. We've been getting a lot of uh, good discussions in our life group out of, uh, out of these lessons uh, from the Gospel of John. So please grab your Bibles. I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to do that. And turn with me to the very last part of John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And we're going to go from verse 23 to verse 25 of John chapter 2. Hopefully you have your Bibles by now. You're at home, so it shouldn't take too long. But stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. Does everyone here in the church have their Bibles? Mark. Uh, He has it on his phone. Don't worry, I'm giving him grace. Let's hope. Uh, let's hope he has that app on his phone. Um, Mark chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. I'm joking. I love this, this brother of mine here. Mark chapter 2. Mark. John chapter 2. <laughs> here we go. John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. It says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that, again, we get this great privilege to come before your throne of grace and hear from your word this evening. We thank you that it is because of your son's sacrifice on the cross that that reconciles us to you, that allows for the Holy Spirit to live and dwell within us, that we might understand your word, that we might understand your will and your purposes. And so, God, I pray on behalf of your people in humility that you would speak to us, that you would bring much and great conviction to our hearts, that you would allow for life change to take place, O Lord. God, we pray for our world this evening. We pray, O oh God, for uh, the rulings of our government in regards to this pandemic and the restrictions in play. Lord God, we do ask for healing over our land. We do ask for uh, your hand of uh, mercy and grace to be on those who are sick. But we also ask, O oh God, that our government might fear you and make decisions with sound reason and mind and the fear of the Lord. And that we might be able to gather once again in person to bring you all the glory and the praise that you deserve. Oh Lord, help us this evening. Help us to focus. I pray that you would remove any distractions from our hearts and our minds. That we might fully give you our attention as you speak to us. 
Use me as your instrument of peace, I pray. In Jesus, your mighty name, amen and amen. Uh, before you sit down or take your seat, tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Sign of Unbelief. The Sign of Unbelief. You may be seated, of course. I've told this story before, but back in the 1800s, there was a famous daredevil by the name of Charles Blondin who was known for performing uh, death-defying acts that captivated the masses. One of his famous acts was uh, walking across a tightrope. It stretched across uh, the Niagara Falls, suspended 160 feet, stretching from the U.S. side to the Canadian side. Blodden would walk across this tightrope above the raging falls. Sometimes he would uh, wear stilts while doing it. Sometimes he'd ride a bicycle as he, as he went across. In one occasion, he even took a small stove and started frying an egg in the middle of this walk across the falls. This man was the real deal, safe to say. Now, on one occasion, Blodden blindfolded himself and took a wheelbarrow across this tightrope uh, and when he got to the other side, the crowd was cheering and, and captivated by his performance. And then Blondin asked the crowd, Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow while blindfolded? And of course, the, the crowd, still high from, from the, the excitement and from the awe, they said, Yes, we believe. Yes, you are the greatest tightrope walker in the world. You can do this. It was then that Blondin asked the, the audience, who will get in the wheelbarrow? The crowd went silent, no doubt, and none volunteered. Now, I love this story because the point of this story is that there is a great deal of difference between saying you believe and actual, sincere, genuine belief. As we come to the end of chapter 2 in John's Gospel, the Apostle sets us up for what's to come in chapter if you've read the Gospel of John before, you know that in the next chapter is the famous discourse between Jesus and one of these Pharisees named Nicodemus. This discourse goes on to explain the essence of saving faith, of sincere faith, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and God's salvific plan to save sinners. This is where we get the, the world's fame, the most famous verse in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who should ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But before John gets to that conversation, he ends chapter 2 with a stark contrast from what's to come. Where John chapter 3, as we'll see, talks about authentic salvific faith. John ends chapter 2 with how it looks like to have false faith, how to have a fake kind of faith. John ends this chapter with how unbelief looks like. Let's see, let's, let's see this in our passage tonight. Everyone say jump. Our passage picks up still in the Passover feast after Jesus cleans out the temple and he has his famous temple-destroying speech uh, with the, the religious uh, leaders. The Jews, the religious authorities, asked Jesus, remember, uh, for a sign that would prove his authority, that would prove who he was. We read how Jesus gives them this final sign of the resurrection and yet they don't believe. Then in, in the same Passover week where our passage picks up, it says in verse 23, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
Jesus continues to display signs of who he was while he was still in Jerusalem in this Passover week. It's not told as to what kind of signs Jesus were, was performing at this point, but we do read in the other Gospels that Jesus were, was healing many and that he was casting out demons, so we could probably connect it to that. John's final statement in his Gospel, in John chapter 21, verse 25, it says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did wherever, wherever, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the book that, was, that would be written. Now, as a result of these signs and miracles, it says that many believed in his name. In his, in his name, meaning who Jesus was. They believed in his authority, his power, and, he, and who, what he was representing as he did these signs and miracles. Now, you'd think this was a good thing. You'd think that this was great. This was the reason why Jesus was coming, right? To have people believe in his name. This is exactly why Christ came. Until you re read the next verse. Verse 24 of our passage says, But Jesus... There's a lot of passages in Scripture where it seems like humans are doing one thing, going one way, until God intervenes, until God steps in and says, But God... And this is one of those times... But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. There is a play of words here that we don't quite get in the English trans translation here. The Greek word for believe is pistuo, to entrust oneself uh, to something. It, it comes from the word of uh, the, the Greek word from, for faith, patho, uh, to be persuaded by something. The two are closely related as belief is the active uh, result of faith. You are persuaded by something, that's faith, and then you entrust yourself to it, that's belief. Now, the Greeks understood that belief took on two forms. Either you believe in something for self-serving purposes or self-persuasion, self so to speak. You get yourself to believe something for your own purposes and your own benefit, your own goals, or... You believe in something as a result of an outside force working to persuade you. In Scripture, that outside force is often God. Now, the only way to tell the difference is the context of the passage in, in Scripture. For example, in verse 22 of, our, of John chapter 2, we read last week, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection of Jesus causes the disciples to believe Scripture and the words of, of Christ all the more. From that context, we can see that the disciples' belief was not for some personal gain, for some self-serving purpose. Rather, they were merely being persuaded by the resurrection of Christ to believe in Scripture all the more and to believe in Christ all the more. This belief of the disciples is greatly contrasted by our passage tonight. It says that after the people saw the signs that they too believed. Again, should be good, right? But what's interesting is that John uses the word for belief in a negative context in the following verses, in verse 23 and 24. He says, again, just recapping, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, in verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself 
to them. The word for entrust here is the same uh, word for believe, pastuo. The Bible translators are, are just giving a more literal translation to the second time uh, that John uses it. But the Apostle John is actually doing a, a wordplay in this moment, in these two statements. He's saying, many believed Jesus, but Jesus did not believe them. What John is getting at is that though these people seem to believe in Jesus after the signs he performed, Jesus knew that their belief was false, not sincere, disingenuous. And, and, and this was rightly the case because these same people in Jerusalem who, who professed believing in Christ that during this Passover would then cry for his crucifixion during the last Passover of Jesus' ministry. These same people were the same ones who would then choose Barabbas over Jesus. These same people were the same ones who would spit and mock Jesus as he walked down the Via Dolorosa as he carried the cross. Remember, in Scripture, the kind of belief one has is dependent on the context and, and, and the, the, that the word is used in, in Scripture. And, and in this case, Jesus is flat out saying their belief was false, that their belief was insincere. This is why it says, and again, just continuing from verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. See, the reality of the situation was that though outwardly these people believed in the signs that Jesus were, was performing, inwardly, faith had not taken root. Jesus in his omniscience knew that their belief was just a facade for their unbelief. And the point that the apostle is making here, what he's setting up for us for the next chapter, is to contrast the kind of belief that the people had versus true and genuine belief that will be talked about with Nicodemus in the next chapter. And what I want to do for us tonight, church, is talk about unbelief and how unbelief looks like because it can manifest itself in explicit ways or implicit ways. Unbelief can look like the religious leaders who publicly uh, denied and rejected Jesus' claim and authority. Or unbelief can look like the people who professed belief in Christ after seeing the signs and miracles, but in reality they did not actually believe. And let me tell you that latter form of unbelief is more dangerous because it is deceptive. Not only for the people around them, but for those people who are self-deceived themselves. They are self-deceived in thinking that they have faith when in reality they do not. Listen, this topic of unbelief is important for us to understand because there are many in the church who are self-deceived, who think that they are in the faith, uh, that they are saved, when in reality they are just as lost as the people who proclaim to believe Christ in our passage. Many people who think that they are saved because they said some prayer at youth camp during the emotional high. Many people who think that they are saved because they, they, they're, they're, their parents are Christian and, so, and they went to church or they're part of some ministry or, or because they sing the songs or because they're knowledgeable about the scriptures. Many people think that they are saved um, and, and, and maybe they can fool others but they cannot fool God. That's the point of our passage. Christ knew what was in the hearts of man. Jesus, Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, it says, 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a scary thing, church. Please understand, I'm not discussing this tonight to to really to scare you or to make you second-guess your faith, nor is this the topic for tonight so that we can criticize those who we think aren't actually Christian. No. My hope here tonight as your pastor is that you would wrestle with your faith this evening, that you would put to death any semblance of unbelief that may linger in your heart, That you would hear the sweet call of the Savior to truly put your faith and trust and belief in Him completely. My hope is that at the end of the day, none of us would be found wanting or turned away by Christ at the end of the day as a result of not actually believing, not actually having faith in Him. My hope is that the gospel would truly take root in our hearts this evening, church capture our thoughts for real and genuine life change to take place as the spirit leads so let's get into this tonight how does unbelief look like how does unbelief look like well first and foremost unbelief is faithless obvious right unbelief is faithless now please understand faithless not in the sense of a lack of faith in anything, but more specifically, a lack of faith in the things of God, or or rather God himself. People with unbelief have faith in something, just not in God. Take, for example, the religious leaders in the temple. They didn't believe Jesus' authority or who he was or who sent him, not because they didn't have faith, but because they were too invested in their own authority, in, their, in the authority of the temple, in the authority of the law. Their faith was in their customs and their traditions. It's why they refused to accept Jesus as the Messiah, because they believed that the Messiah would come as a military leader, a, a conquering king who would overthrow Rome. Not a rabbi from Nazareth who, 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 who hung out with sinners and fishermen. They lack faith in Christ because they put their faith in their own teachings and their own traditions and their own understandings. It's the same thing if you go to any unbeliever outside of the church. The reason why they don't believe the gospel or the things of God is not because they lack faith, but because they have faith in something else, whether it's another religion or a philosophy or a government ideology or even in themselves. Every person believes or has faith in something, but what keeps them in unbelief is the denial of the truths of God so that they can maintain whatever worldview or philosophy or religion that they have chosen to follow. Paul talks about this in the first chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 25. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. Earlier in this passage, Paul says that how man is without excuse because they see the evidence of the creator, yet they willfully 
choose ignorance of futile thinking. They willfully choose to worship the creation rather than the creator. Now, let's bring this a little closer to home. Remember the purpose of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The gospel is written, this gospel is written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. God's anointed one, the one who would be our sacrifice for sin, the one who would live the life that we could not live. It was written so that we could put our faith in the sufficient sacrifice of God for our sin in Jesus Christ. It was also written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal with God. He is second, the second person in the Trinity, the creator of the universe, the one who has the highest authority in this life and in the next. Now, all of that I just said, everything that I just mentioned requires us to drop whatever we believed in prior to Christ and put our entire faith in him. There is no 50-50 here. There's, there is no faith in Christ and faith in works. There is no faith in Jesus and, and, and faith in Mary. There is no faith in Jesus and in, also in, in priests, in sacraments, in laws, in, in saints. It's Christ alone. Listen, there is... This is where a lot of people become self-deceived in their faith. Sure, they profess Christ alone, yet they are still trying to work for their salvation or still living by their own standards or, or the world's philosophy, still maintaining former ways of thinking that usurp Christ from his rightful throne. No, either your faith, your trust, your belief is in God's salvific work through Christ alone or... It's not at all. Like Paul says in, the Ro in that Romans 1 passage, we don't get to choose to worship Christ and choose to worship the things of creation as well. If Jesus is the Savior, then there is no room for other saviors in your life. If Jesus is the Savior, then you can't save yourself. That's, that's essentially why Jesus came. So ask yourself, because of your faith in the, in the things of this world, yourself, your, the, the, the philosophies, the ideologies, have you become faithless to the things of God? Because that's unbelief. If you're putting your faith in something other than God and his truths for your salvation, that's unbelief. Regardless if you sing the songs or you come to church or you give your tithe, it is unbelief. It is faithless. Real faith abandons all else and declares Christ as king. It reworks all our ideologies and our philosophies and our worldview. Real faith submits to Christ alone. So unbelief is faithless. Secondly, Unbelief is fruitless. Unbelief is fruitless. Unbelief lacks fruit. This is evident in the kind of faith that these people that, who said that they believed in Jesus during the Passover had. But then when push came to shove, when, when the final uh, Passover comes and Jesus is put on trial, either they went with the mob in wanting to crucify Christ or they just denied him completely. This is why Jesus did not believe them because in their hearts, he could tell that there was nothing that took root. 
In Matthew's gospel, Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower. We've discussed this before. A sower goes out to sow seeds. Some of those seeds fall on the roadside. Some fall into a patch of rocks. Some fall into thorns. And some fall into good soil. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20 to 23, it says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. The number one difference between the seeds that fall into good soil and, and the rest is that the ones that fall into the good soil bear much fruit. And the reason why the other places don't bear fruit is because the word, the gospel, doesn't actually take root in those hearts. It's a shallow faith, a superficial faith, the kind of faith that is only there for the good times, the excitement, the celebrations, the spiritual highs, the feel-good experiences. This was probably the case for these people who said that they believed in Jesus during the Passover. Jesus is performing these miracles, healing people, casting out demons. I mean, who wouldn't be caught up in the excitement, in the awe of all of it? Wow, this is amazing. This, is, this guy is powerful. This guy can, can heal and, and, and cast out demons. This is, he must be the real deal. It's like that story of Charles Blondin. They were in it for that moment, the excitement. But when the trials and the tribulations came, when, when Jesus was literally put on trial, they all turned or called him, or called for his crucifixion. Jesus will even call out this kind of unbelief, this kind of faith later in, in our study, in John chapter 6. After feeding the 5,000, Jesus sails across the Sea of Galilee, and those, those that he fed follows him to the other side. So when, he gets to the, when Jesus gets to the other side, Jesus confronts them. He says in John chapter 6, verse 26, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, not because you believed, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus knew that they were there to get something in return or, or because they wanted more food, not because they had genuinely believed in Christ. Their faith was fruitless. See, genuine faith takes root and bears much fruit. And that fruit comes out with obedience, a, cha a changed life, a new way of thinking. It goes past the spiritual highs, the, the good feelings, the, the sentimentalities of the faith. It per perseveres through hardships and trials and the testings of the faith. It keeps the faith central despite the, 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 the riches of the world, despite the concerns of the world. Real faith manifests itself in, in, changed, in a changed life. This is what James talks about in his epistle. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is not saying that you need works to be saved here. 
He's seeing that genuine faith, faith that takes root and manifests itself in life change and good works, a life that is above reproach, that is worthy of the gospel, a fruitful life. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. Our good works is a manifestation of the perfect work that Christ has accomplished at the cross for us. So let me ask you this evening, how is your life different from before you put your faith in Christ to, to after you put your faith in Christ? How, how, how has your life changed? Has the gospel invaded every corner of your heart, changed the way you think to the point where, where, where you cannot live the way that you lived before, that you are no longer recognizable from what you were? Or is your life the same? Is your life no different than how it was before? Still in sin, still uh, struggling in sin, still thinking the same way, still, still not bearing fruit. That's a good sign that there's some unbelief there and that maybe the gospel has not actually taken root. How has your belief in Christ changed your life? Unbelief is fruitless. Real faith produces fruit. Lastly, unbelief is loveless. Unbelief is loveless. Remember the Greek word for believe or belief in our passage or in scripture is pastuo, to entrust oneself to something, to whatever it is that you are putting your faith in. This idea of entrust is a relational trust. It is a willingness to put your life in the hands of whatever it is that you're putting your faith in. This is why Christians, you know, as Christians, we often talk about a relationship rather than a religion because our faith requires us to entrust ourselves to God, to Christ, to his finished work, to his will and purposes, all of which stems from love, a relationship with him. And this is what is at the core of saving faith, a reconciled relationship with the Holy God. Remember God's command to his people in the Old Testament, the kind of people that he was trying to shape and cultivate, and, and the same commands that Christ echoes in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 45, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love is central to how we are to interact with the Holy God. It's not enough to merely say you believe in God. That same passage in James that we just read uh, continues on to say, you believe that God is one, you do well. But even demons believe and shudder. James is ta uh, taking that passage, uh, that line straight from this Deuteronomy passage where God calls his people to not just believe that he is one, but to also love him with all our hearts and with all our soul and with all our might. Unbelief doesn't have that love. It is loveless. It knows about God, but is not known by God. It knows scripture, but does not love the word. It believes that Jesus is good, but not the ultimate good, not the ultimate love, not the ultimate satisfaction to our soul. It doesn't hold Christ as the treasure that we just sang about. 
It is loveless. It is cold, unmoved by the death of Christ. It is unstirred by the Holy Spirit. It lacks conviction over sin and disobedience. The reason why unbelief is loveless is because at the center of unbelief is the love of self. It's the love of our ways and our wants and our desires and our aspirations. It has no room to love the Savior because love requires submission and surrender and sacrifice and those tenets do not fit in a human-centered worldview where we love ourselves. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, in that same chapter, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A love for God is at the center of real faith. Listen, the apostles of the early church the first Christians were willing to lay down their life for the gospel. Do you think that came from some intellectual understanding of who Jesus was? Or, or because they simply knew who, about these things of God? No. Do you think that these apostles were, they were willing to be tortured and crucified and fed to animals all because they had this, this head knowledge of who Christ was? Because they believed intellectually. No, they were willing to go through trials and tribulations and suffering and punishment because they loved the Savior. Because they loved the Savior. And that's what we're called to do, church. That's the kind of faith that we're called to, to manifest as well. A faith that takes root. A faith that, that, that connects the, the head to the heart and genuinely loves Christ. At the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 21, when, when Jesus is redeeming Peter, he asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter says, you know I love you, and you know I love you, you know I love you. And three times Jesus says, then take care of my sheep, take care, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. But after that whole conversation, Jesus goes into the, uh, Jesus goes into how Peter would suffer. He, he tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you, were, you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where, where you do not want to go. He was talking about how, how Peter would die for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of that love that he just confessed to. After saying all this to Peter, he says, follow me. This is the ultimate test of real, authentic faith, of love that endures suffering, that endures the testing of the faith. So ask yourself, does your faith consist of a love that is sincerely for the Savior? Or is it just all head knowledge? Have you read the Bible and you've come to church and you've heard the sermons? They say that the longest distance in the world is distance between the head and the heart because it has to that, that, that information that knowledge that you know has to travel to the depths of your heart to your entire being to love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind 
with all your might? Ask yourself, does your faith consist of a love, sincere love for the Savior? Unbelief is loveless. Real faith is filled with love for the Savior. How does unbelief look like? Unbelief is faithless, unbelief is fruitless, and unbelief is loveless. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close this evening. I think it's, it's quite amazing, really, the Gospel of John and the, just how the Holy Spirit uh, inspired the Apostle to write these things. Last week we talked about unbelief of the religious leaders and how they disregarded the sign of the resurrection and how even Christians today disregard or, or do not believe in the resurrection. And just continuing on with that theme and how unbelief looks like and how Jesus even calls out unbelief in this final part of John's gospel in John chapter 2. I think the message here, church, especially in these trying times that we've been experiencing with the pandemic and the stay-at-home orders and the shutdowns, I believe the, the word of the Lord and, and what God is trying to get across to us, and even me, really, is do we have sincere and genuine faith in him? I think God is calling all of us not just believers in our church, but just, you know, talking to other pastors and what's happening in their churches as well. There's a real sense of God sort of really separating the sheep and the goat, right? Separating the wheat and the tares. A real sense that God is getting his people, his real and genuine people to examine themselves to make sure that they are right with him. that's a word for us tonight. Examine yourself, church. Examine your faith in the Lord. Is it sincere faith? Or are you just in it just to get something out of it? Because you, you heard that it's a, your, your ticket out of hell. Or, or you heard that, you know, this is a, the only way to live a blessed life. Is inviting you to a relationship, to a genuine belief in Him, to not just know Him intellectually, but to love Him completely. And if you've been listening to this sermon tonight, and you've been and you've been wondering, struggling in your faith, maybe wrestling in it, and you think, you know, Pastor Ian, I'm afraid because maybe I'm not saved. I think that's a good place to be in. settled into your heart is a good sign that the Holy Spirit is convicting you to repent to turn from your ways that's where you need to be in the fear of the Lord a sincere understanding of your sinfulness your wretchedness before a holy God and how you need him to save you truly Paul talks about how we are to work out our salvation in and trembling. If you're not concerned about your salvation, if you're not concerned about your eternal destiny, then I would be concerned. Then I would be fearful for you. 
it's okay to have fear and it's okay to have doubts in faith because Christ can work even in your unbelief even in your fears I love the story of, of the man who was asking Jesus to heal his son and at the end of the, way, at, at the, end of the day Jesus asked him do you believe and, and the man honestly and sincerely says I believe but help my unbelief That he that there, he was trying to get from the head to the heart place. He was he was having to go over the hurdles of doubt and fear and unbelief. But he was positioning himself before the Savior because it is only Christ. It is only Christ who who gets us from from unbelief to true faith. In that same passage in Philippians that Paul. Talks about wrestling with our, 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 our faith. He also says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, the purpose and, and the heart position that we are to have as we search Christ in our unbelief is to cry out to him, to recognize that he is the only one that can save us, he's the only one that can help us. Because in reality, we cannot sustain men. God, you know where we have traded your glory for the glory of creation, where we have sought satisfaction and truth, maybe even salvation in things of this world and ideologies of man and philosophies of this world. And I pray, oh God, that you would break our hearts this evening, that you would bring about the fear of the Lord in our hearts once again, that you would help us to recognize our deep spiritual and physical and eternal need for you. That God, life change would take place, genuine and real 
life change would take place in our hearts, that this night would not be, would not end without all of us having a right relationship with you this evening. Oh God, it is only you who can save us. God, we believe that it is only through the death and resurrection of Christ that we have access, that we have forgiveness, that we have reconciliation. Oh Lord God, help our unbelief. Help us, Lord God, where we have grown doubt, where we have lost our hope of your power, of your authority in our lives. Help our unbelief in our in the situations in our lives that, that we have lost faith in. Lord God, I pray that you would work in your people this evening. That we might have real and genuine, sincere, loving faith in you. Lord, do not leave us the same. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.